he looked at me with such disgust. He said, yes, pretend. Vicky, the hippo's here. The people gathered together to celebrate the bounty of the earth. We love story! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And we've got a great hour for you today with stories from Sid Lieberman, from Sheila Arnold, from the Story Crafters. And if any of the stories that we bring you today spark memories or thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love as stories, well, all the better. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And to kick us off, we've got a story from Sid Lieberman. Now, maybe you've played the game that I have, where you get together with your pals and you say, hey, if they made a movie of your life, what famous actor would play you? That's always been a head-scratcher for me, until elementary school kids, when I would go and perform stories for them, would tell me that I looked like Jack Black. Well, I don't know what famous actor would play you. Maybe you've thought of it. But this story is called I'm Sean Connery, told for you by Sid Lieberman. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Apple Seed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, it's a new story, and uh, it's called I'm Sean Connery. <laughs> You're lucky if sometime in your life you're in the right spot at the right time, and you have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that happened to me a number of years ago outside an ice cream parlor in my hometown of Evanston, Illinois. But to understand the significance of that moment, you have to understand something about me. I'm about to make a confession. Most of what I thought makes up a man while I was growing up came from the movies. My three role models were Marlon Brando, Paul Newman and Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> what movies, what characters, what lines. Brando playing sweaty Stanley Kowalski in his ripped t-shirt out on the pavement screaming, Stella! Stella! Or tough guy boxer Terry Malone in On the Waterfront who turns his life around because of his love for Eva Marie Saint. And at the end of the movie, he's telling his brother Charlie why he shouldn't have had him throw a fight. He says, Charlie, Charlie, no, no. Wow, you don't understand. I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. I could have had class instead of a bum, which, let's face it, is what I am. Or Newman playing Cool Hand Luke. He defies the evil prison warden, and the warden characterizes that defiance as what we have here is failure to communicate. <laughs> and Newman just answers with a smirk. Or... And just remember this, a kiss is just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh, the fundamental things apply as time goes by. Bogart. In Casablanca, 
standing at a foggy airport to make sure that Ingrid Bergman and her husband get on the plane to Lisbon. She is willing to leave her husband and stay with Bogart, but her husband is a world-famous resistance fighter, and he can't do his work without her. And so Bogart gives up Bergman the love of his life. They had a whirlwind affair in Paris because he knows what's best for her, her husband, and the world. <laughs> he says to her, it doesn't take much to know that the troubles of three little people in this crazy world don't amount to a hill of beans. And then he chucks her lightly under the chin and says what he used to say to her in their city. Here's looking at you, kid. That's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be handsome and sexy and tough to stand up for what was right. I wanted to be a leading man. And when I was younger, I had a certain something. When I was 14, I met my wife. She was 13, and we met because she winked at me. She thought I was good-looking. And I thought she looked like Audrey Hepburn, so I winked back. And in high school, I had a crew-cut version of those characters. I wore a short-sleeved shirt and rolled up the sleeves, not to put a pack of cigarettes in there, but to show off my muscles. I was an all-city halfback at an undefeated championship team. But then you get older, and you lose your leading man good looks. When I was middle-aged, I got into storytelling, and people said, you know, you should do commercials. You should get a headshot and do auditions. So I did. The first audition I went to, I opened the door, and there in front of me were the most beautiful people I'd ever seen. Women, men, young in sporting outfits, T-shirts, and shorts. I thought, what is going on? And then I turned around, and there was a 100 guys who looked just like me. Bald. <laughs> Beards, mustaches, they were there for a sporting words ad. I was there for a commercial for a waiter. The kind of commercials my agency sent me to, a Metamucil commercial. <laughs> I went in, there were six guys sitting around the table. The director said to me, okay, here's the idea. You're going to take up a packet of our rival's product. You're going to rip it open, and it's going to spill on you, the powder. We have a new packaging idea, so okay, go ahead. Well, I'm not an actor, and I was new at this. I looked around, and there was no packet there. So I didn't know what to do, and I said to him, should I pretend? <laughs> pretend? <laughs> he looked at me with such disgust. He said, yes, pretend. <laughs> well, when I got older, you would think my desire to be a leading man would disappear. No. What disappeared was me. When I was younger, I'd walk down the street, I'd check out a girl, or I'd discover a girl was checking out me, and maybe our eyes would meet, and we'd smile, there might be a little flirting. Or I'd be walking down the street, and I'd see some guy kind of looking at me, you know, as if we were about to get into a fight in a ring somewhere, and I'd kind of look back. But now I walk down the street, and nobody notices me. Or if they do notice, all they notice is ball head and gray hair, and they want to offer me a seat on the subway. <laughs> so what does a man like me do for a role model now that he's middle-aged? I found mine, Sean Connery. <laughs> now, you may not have noticed that I'm not 6'2", or Scottish, but I look a little bit like him. <laughs> huh? Bald head? 
Yeah, gray hair, a little beard, that little brown around the chin. And he's perfect. When he was younger, he played Agent 007 with sophisticated machismo. I'm Bond, James Bond. And what role did he get his Oscar for? The stand-up Irish cop in The Untouchables, fighting the mafia with Kevin Costner. And now, even to this day, he's still playing romantic leads in adventure films and getting the girl. In 2000, he was knighted, but that's nothing. In a People magazine poll, when he was nearly 60, and I turned 60 last spring, he was voted the sexiest man alive. He appeared in a television ad for, I think, American Express. They tape his name on it, and at the end, he'd say, I'm Sean Connery. I loved it. I'm Sean Connery. I began to say it all the time. <laughs> I was driving my wife crazy. I'd come into the room, I'd wait till she'd look up, and I'd say, I'm Sean Connery. <laughs> I'd sit down to dinner, I'd say, hello, I'm Sean Connery. I'd crawl into bed with her. <laughs> I'm Sean Connery. I love saying it. I loved feeling it. I'm Sean Connery. And then the magic moment happened. We were sitting outside that ice cream parlor in, in Evanston, Illinois, and two young girls came by, and one stopped. Her eyes got really big. Her jaw actually dropped, and she stared at me for a long time. And then she asked... Are you Roger Moore? <laughs> Which actually is a, is a wonderful mistake because he played James Bond after Sean Connery, but on top of that, it was perfect. It was a perfect cue for my line. It was as if I'd been practicing for this moment a reason to say it, but not only that, maybe she would believe it. And I looked up and I said, no. I missed it. I flubbed a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Adrian couldn't believe it. She was staring at me like, what did you do? And since that day, she's been teasing me unmercifully. And I've been kicking myself because they say you can't get a second chance. But that's not always true, especially if you're a storyteller <laughs> telling the story. So at the count of three, you know what I would like you to do? One, two, three. Are you No, I'm Sean Connery. Sid Lieberman with I'm Sean Connery here on the Appleseed. What a pleasure to bring that tale to you. And if it sparks thoughts for you about what famous actor might play you if they ever made a movie about your life, well, again, all the better. That kind of storytelling shared between friends around the kitchen table or the living room can make for memories that last a lifetime. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear from Sheila Arnold. You'll hear from the wonderful storytelling duo, the story crafters, Jerry Bird 
Burns and Barry Marshall with their rhythmic, magical, musical way of telling tales. And uh, that's all coming up. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, you heard a story from Sid Lieberman called I'm Sean Connery. And coming up, you're going to hear from Sheila Arnold with a story called Malawi and Hippo Love Story. That's one you're not going to want to miss. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes spark thoughts and stories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine, some thoughts Well, their thoughts about stuttering. Today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. Happy to bring them to you on the Appleseed. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My wife and I will remember for a long time, I think, the story of 13-year-old Braden Harrington, the New Hampshire kid who got some advice from then-presidential candidate Joe Biden. The story goes that Biden told Braden that because both of them stuttered, they were members of the same club. Biden told young Braden that he used to read aloud from the poetry of William Butler Yeats to practice speaking. And he showed Braden how he, President Biden, marks certain words and letters in speeches to make them easier to say out loud. Well, Braden did the same thing. He wound up telling his story as a speaker at the Democratic National Convention. And there's this great moment in that speech in which Braden holds up the paper on which the speech is written, and you can see the marks he's made on it, these marks that will guide him through the speech to make the words easier to say. Well, my wife and I became really interested in Braden's experience, this story that had a moment in the national spotlight. Partly because my wife, since she was a little girl, has struggled with stuttering. She's incredibly well-spoken, my wife, but even now, when she speaks, she's always in the process of employing one technique or another, just like Braden Harrington or President Biden, in order to speak through the stutter. And we sometimes take our cues for inspiration from heroes on the world scene. One film that means a lot to my wife, for example, is The King's Speech about King George VI and his struggle with stuttering. And there's nothing wrong with looking to the world stage to find inspiration in these characters writ large across the pages of history. But often you don't have to look to the world stage. There are stories just as inspiring, just as useful around your own dinner table or the dinner tables of the world, like the story of Braden Harrington. We sometimes don't like to share stories of struggle, stories of difficulty, but many of us have had the experience of hearing about a struggle faced by a peer, and we've reacted to it by saying, that happened to me. We're in the same club, and suddenly there's a kinship between us. My wife and our daughter, Leah, for many years have run a Shakespeare company for young actors. The kids in the company range usually from about 8 years old to about 15 years old, and they take on the enormous task together of performing a Shakespeare play. 
Now, this happens several times a year. And these kids are, many of them, right at the age when they're coping with challenges in a social world for the first time. Speech impediments, sure, but also all kinds of other things, from physical illnesses to emotional insecurities. And in a lot of arenas in their lives, they look around and they see nothing but people who, at least in their view, aren't suffering from some of the things that are hugely preoccupying to them. And they clam up. They work to hide the things by which they're challenged, whatever those challenges are. And then, by chance, they learn that someone else in the Shakespeare cast is experiencing the same challenge that they've been working to overcome or to conceal. And they tell each other their stories and they become friends. Or, and this happens all the time, a kid who is having a hard time wrapping his or her mouth around all this Shakespearean verbiage learns that my wife has struggled her whole life with stuttering. Or a kid who is just paralyzed with nerves about taking the stage for the first time in King Lear or something, learns that my daughter has suffered her whole life from panic attacks. There are kids for whom the most important thing about being in the acting company turns out to have been their learning, that their incredibly well-spoken director is working actively in every sentence she ever says to communicate without stuttering, or to have discovered an ally in my daughter who has had to learn how to keep working and moving forward through panic attacks. My son is taking a class in which he's supposed to interview over the course of several long conversations someone connected to his history. And he's chosen me. And as we've talked, he's asking me all these questions about things in my life that I always assumed were known to him. And I'm finding that in a lot of cases, I'm wrong. There's a lot of storytelling that has gone undone. So I'm really glad I have this opportunity. And what's happening is that as he hears my answers to his questions, which are mostly in the form of stories about things that have happened to me and how I felt about them and how I navigated them, he keeps saying, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. But he's not, of course. We're members of the same club. And in a lot of ways, we're just now discovering it. Well, what can that kind of sharing do when we open up and tell each other stories of challenges we've faced? Well, I love what Braden Harrison said about his interaction with fellow stutterer Joe Biden. I'm just a regular kid, Braden said, and he added that just that brief interaction made him more confident about something that's bothered him his whole life. Would you tell someone your story if that was the payoff? Yeah, I would too. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up, stories from Sheila Arnold and the storytelling team of Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, the story crafters. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? 
Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course, through the things that happen to us, the things that we tell as stories passed down from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about the way that those stories get down into our lives and the shape that they take once they're there is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. I'm so pleased to be joined by Dolores Haddock from her home in Alabama. Dolores, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Sam. It's wonderful to be here. You know, every once in a while, I will come across a foodstuff that takes me back in a way that I'm unprepared for to some moment in my childhood. Even if I'm out in the yard cleaning up the apples that have fallen from the tree, suddenly I'm eight years old having apple fights with my brothers and right. the neighbor kids, right? And right. you've got some food memories. Right. I think, you know, food has so many connotations for us and so many connections for us. Um, but, but this particular one uh, comes around every fall. Yeah. I have a, a friend named Bob and Bob is an engineer and Bob knows how to make things work. <laughs> and Bob thinks things should work. And they should have a function and they should do that function the way they are supposed to. He has no time for anything that is purely decorative. You know, it's just a waste of time and space to him. Yeah. And so in the garden around his house, Bob does not have flowers or pretty trees and shrubs. Bob grows things that are useful, things that <laughs> do something. He has tomato plants. He has blueberry bushes. He has herbs in pots. He has fruit trees. He's got plum trees and a peach tree and an apple tree, even something called an aprium. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a, it's a hybrid between an apricot and a plum. Oh, good heavens. It, it has not yet flowered for him or fruited for him, but he says he's going to give it one more year before it goes on the burn pile as useless. <laughs> but Bob also has two pear trees that produce a crop of hard green pears, hard as billiard balls. Now, Bob likes to grow edible things and he likes to eat, but he does not like to cook. He's not that interested in cooking. I, on the other hand, love to cook, but my garden is full of hydrangeas and Japanese maples. And so Bob and I have a deal. He shares part of his harvest with me. I turn it into casseroles and pestos and cobblers, and I share part of my efforts with him and everybody's happy. And I love it when, when it gets to be June and the blueberries start to come in. I love a whole summer full of homegrown tomatoes. But the best is late September when Bob shows up at my back door with a brown grocery sack full of those hard green pears. Uh. <laughs> because when I see those pears, when I cook those pears, oh my gosh, it takes three hours of slow cooking just to put a, put a fork in them. <laughs> Uh, when I eat those pears, I am reminded of my dad and what a smart man he was and something really special he did for my mom. Hmm. When I was a kid growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania, every once in a while, especially on a Sunday afternoon, my dad would come find my two sisters and me, wherever we were, whatever we were doing, he would jangle his car keys in the air and say, who wants to go for a ride? And the three of us would jump up and would run into the black and white Chevy Impala or the chestnut brown Ford Galaxy 500, whatever the car was that year. Because back then, going for a ride was something special. Yeah. I mean, we lived in Reading, Pennsylvania. It was a 
mid-sized industrial northeastern city. And like most of those cities, we had a great public transportation system. And so if you were going someplace just a few blocks away, you walked. If you were going someplace more than a few blocks away, you took the bus. And the car was just for long trips and special occasions. And so getting to go on a Sunday afternoon ride, wow, that was a treat. Well, whichever way we started out, we would always end up on the road to nowhere. That's what everybody called it, the road to nowhere. It was this (laughs) one mile long stretch of newly paved four lane that went nowhere. It was supposed to connect these two highways. The money came from the State Department of Transportation, but the the money ran out way before the road ever got built. I mean, when it barely got started. And so there was just this one mile drag strip where you could go really fast. I mean, you could go 40 or 45 miles an hour (laughs) for a mile. And then you got dumped off in the middle of these beautiful Pennsylvania Dutch farms. And so we would zoom down the road to nowhere and then we would wander along country roads. We might stop at a farm stand, pick up a basket of peaches or a shoe fly pie. But if it was late September, before we went home, we would go to the train yards Reading, Pennsylvania really was home to the Reading Railroad. You remember playing Monopoly? Absolutely. Uh, You might have thought it was the Reading (laughs) Railroad, but it's not. It's the Reading Railroad. And there along the the train yards were were these pear trees that grew wild on the slope above the rail bed. My dad always knew when those pears were just ready to pick and we would pull in. There was always a grocery sack in the trunk of the car. My dad would climb up into the lowest branches of the tree and he would shake down those hard green pears. My sisters and I would run ducking, you know, not to get hit by one of those <laughs> billiard balls of a pear. And we'd gather them up. When we had a sack full, we'd go back home. And my mom would always be so glad to see us. Oh, you brought me some pears, she'd say. <laughs> well, years went by. Decades went by. My mother in her mid-80s. And one day she and I were talking about those green pears and those Sunday afternoon rides. And she said, you know, your dad did those rides for me. I said, what are you talking about? You never went along. It was just the three of us girls. She said, that was the whole point. She said, your dad always knew when I was right at the end of my rope with you girls, when I could not take one more whiny, sassy, squabbly minute of you kids. And that's when he would take out those car keys and whisk you away, giving me an hour or two to take a nap or take a bath or just not have you kids underfoot for a little while. She said, believe me, I love those Sunday afternoon rides more than you girls ever did. (laughs) And so now when Bob shows up at my back door with that grocery sack full of those hard green pears, I think about my dad and what a smart man he was and how he took care of my mom and took care of us girls taking us on that road to nowhere that, I don't know, somehow always brought us home. (laughs) You know, a food memory can be, uh, you know, I I like to think about zip files, you know, these, these, these files that when you click them open, they, they open up into something much bigger than you think they're going to be. And, and that's, that's that's what a food memory can be. And, and what a wonderful example of that. Suddenly by looking at one of those little green pears, you're suddenly, 
the, the world of your young life unfolds. That's you know? right. There's yeah, a whole movie that you get to watch. That's uh, right. In yeah. your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a delightful conversation. Dolores Hydock, thanks so much for joining me on The Appleseed. Thanks, Sam. It's been fun. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Dolores Hydock here on The Appleseed. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Sheila Arnold with a story called Malawian Hippo Love Story. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Sheila Arnold, kind of a tall tale, from her own experiences on a mission trip in Malawi. In this story, Sheila is entranced and excited by all the animals she has the opportunity to see, especially the most aggressive and territorial creature of them all, the hippopotamus. And when Sheila's snoring roommate accidentally calls a real hippo over, how will the two women deal with the ensuing chaos? You're going to find out in Malawian hippo love story here on The Appleseed. There are many places I visit that become a storyteller paradise. And one of the places was during the first time I went to Malawi on a mission trip in 2009. On this first visit, I was very fortunate to be able to go to a preserve, Lawande National Park, and to stay overnight at the Mvu camp. While we were there, we went on both a daytime and a nighttime safari and saw all sorts of animals. We saw monkeys that were rather disgusting because they were throwing their food at us. We saw warthogs who look like they're praying while they're eating. They're so sweet. Uh, we saw impalas and sables, the animals, not the cars. We saw zebras, at least a brief, quick look at zebras. They don't like to be noticed. We saw a rhino who was at the wrong place at our right time. And we saw elephants, often only at an arm's length away. We also went on an afternoon cruise on the large Shire River and were introduced to crocodiles, the Jesus bird who walks so fast it looks like he's walking on water, the white-breasted cormorant that left white poop on every tree you see, and also the hippos. When I saw the hippos, I immediately became concerned because I remembered seeing one at the San Diego Zoo and learning all about them. And I learned they were the most dangerous and territorial animals in all of Africa. They were known to go under your boat, and if you stayed in their territory, they would capsize your boat, turn it upside down, and when you got in the water, they would stand on top of you until you drowned. Well, I saw these hippos, and they brought their ears, eyes, and nose above the water, and I could hear what they were saying. You're in the wrong place, buddy. You better back it up and go, or else. I mentioned to our ranger that we might want to leave the hippos' territory, but he said, Ah, no, they know who we are, and he smiled. I, however, still remembered what I had learned at the zoo. So I moved to the middle of the boat and held on as I saw the hippos go underwater. I held on and I was determined not to be thrown in the water and I wasn't going to be stood on and I waited. But after several minutes, I saw the hippos appear behind us. Ah, oh, we survived. 
We traveled on and were about to turn around and go back to shore when we came across a lone hippopotamus eating grass on a shore bank all by himself. Everyone on the team took out cameras and began to click pictures. He looked up at us and turned a quarter of the way around, showing us his behind, and me and my mission team took more pictures. He turned his head, and we were still there, so he turned some more. And on this quarter turn, we saw that his flank was bitten and scratched up. When we asked the ranger why, he explained that this hippo had grown too big for his family and had fought for leadership and lost. Therefore, he was exiled and was waiting for his own family. We asked him how he would find it, and he said that the hippo would be listening for a love call from another hippo, and they were fairly loud. Oh, he said, and took more pictures. And I tell you, I could almost see that hippo shake his head and wish we were gone. We had a wonderful outside meal at Mvu Camp, and then we were instructed to go to our huts and by 9.30 p.m. have our front and side doors locked because although the animals were free to roam after dark, we were not. Each of us had a roommate and mine was Vicky. Vicky was an amazing young lady. She was 21 years old, had long red hair, a petite little woman, maybe a size one or two. And I tell you, I just adored her. And for this one night, we were roommates and I was delighted because I would get to know her better. Since our hut was the closest to the river, one of the things she and I really wanted to do was get a recording of the hippo sounds. We had heard a few of them on the river, and they were quite loud, so we were hopeful to get some samples. We went out on the porch before night and our curfew set in, and we took the small handheld recorder and listened. We picked up lots of sounds, but none of the hippo, and before we knew it, it was time for bed. So we left the recorder out on the desk near the door, changed clothes, and went to bed, and finally to sleep. Somewhere early in the morning, I heard it. It woke me out of my sleep. I whispered to my roommate, Vicky, the hippo's here. I got out of the bed and put on my slippers, Vicky, the hippo's here. I went over to the desk and patted around until I found the recorder and I recorded the sound. Vicky, the hippo's here. I kept walking towards Vicky's side of the bed and the hippo's roar was louder on her side of the room. It must already be on land. Vicky, wake up. The hippo's here and real close. I leaned down to my petite, red-headed young roommate and heard that sound was coming from my roommate. That petite child had that sound in her body. <laughs> and I began to laugh, but then I heard something else. It was a real hippo. I think he had heard my roommate's uh, snore, and that lonely hippo believed he had a love call going out to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Suddenly, I heard something on the front porch move. It sounded like footsteps, heavy ones. And then something was pushing lightly on the front door. It was the hippo. I turned back to my roommate and realized she was not waking up, and that sound wasn't going away. Plus, that lovesick hippo didn't sound like he would be thwarted by a simple door. I decided it was time to take matters into my own hands. I went back around the bed, changed out of my pajamas and slippers, and put on jeans, a shirt, a light jacket, and my tennis shoes. I slipped the recorder into my pants pocket and began to put my plan into action. I knew it would work because I had grown up watching MacGyver and seen episodes of the original Mission Impossible. I had watched, as on these shows, how people were able to get out of impossible situations using sometimes only a small safety pin and always within the last five minutes of the end of the show. I could do this. First, I had to dare to open the side door and walk outside. The sound of the lovesick hippo gave me the last push, and I unlocked the door and walked outside and came eye to eye with an elephant. She was as surprised as I was that I was there. She looked at me and I looked at her. She looked at me and I looked at her. Then her child came up, took one look at me, screamed, ah! and ran away. The mother elephant thought that was an excellent course of action, and she also bolted away, and I let out my breath. I went out the door, ensuring it was closed behind me, and began my trek to the water. I remembered that some rowboats had been left by the side of the river. As I walked in the pitch dark, thanking the Lord for all the carrots I ate as I grew up leaving my sight so good, I remembered the ranger telling us about the eastern green mamba, one of the ten most venomous snakes in Africa. He said they only come out at night and lived in the trees that I was walking under. I only glanced up once. Finally, I came to the lake and just needed to step over a log to get to the rowboat. As I approached the log, the log's mouth opened. Crocodile. Well, <laughs> if it would just stay there, then I could get to the rowboat. Then I remembered more from the ranger. Oh, he was a wealth of remembered information at times like this. Crocodiles and hippos do not get along, and the hippo is the one that is more feared. I discreetly reached in my pants pocket and pressed play on the recorder. That's all it took for the log to go quickly into the water. I hastily made my way to the rowboat. Climbing into the rowboat, I picked up the two oars. I knew I would need great strength to row this boat some distance away from the shore, but I had no worries. No matter how much flapping of skin you may see under my arms, I knew I was still strong. These were the arms that carried a 45-pound child much longer than he required, only because he faked sleep and refused to walk in at night. These were the arms that held six bags of full groceries and walked them into the house and actually opened the front door while the son inside played video games and couldn't understand why I was glaring at him. These were the arms that held the forks that allowed myself to eat well in buffet lines, so I knew these arms had great strength. As I rode into the river, I could still hear the love fest. And the hippo was sounding more and more eager to meet his love by the shuffling of his feet on the porch. 
When I had rowed what I thought was a fair distance, a hundred feet or so, I took out the recorder, placed it on the middle seat, and turned it on. I didn't hear any response from the hippo. I turned up the volume. And suddenly, the hippo heard. And the love triangle began. The hippo was obviously being competed for. And I heard him nudge the door again. You could hear his frustration and not being able to get to a love so close. But then the sound of the love waiting in the water must have overcome him. And I could hear him as he began to walk off the porch, announcing his intentions. Those were his intentions for his love, which unfortunately would elude him as well. All's fair in war and love. When I heard the hippo dive into the Shire River, I stood up and dove in as well. I knew it was a hundred feet or so, but I was a strong swimmer. I had proven this often by swimming in my bathtub and not even rubber duckies could compete with me. Not only that, I had watched my youngest sister swim competitively on most Saturdays of my young life and she was good. And as I was her older sister, that inevitably made me a better swimmer or so I often told her in my consistently brilliant logic. As I swam, I quickly dismissed thoughts of meeting a crocodile without having a recording of a hippo or being met by one of those fish that found open bodily orifices, mouths, noses, and other places in which to lodge themselves. In no time at all, I arrived on shore. I only took one hurried glance into the trees. Whew, still no green mamba. I did have to step over a warthog that was in a praying position. Obviously, he had seen my desperate plight. Then I was to the side door. I quietly opened the side door, then closed and locked it. With stealth, I went to the bathroom, shed my clothes, took a much needed shower, dried off, and put back on my pajamas and slippers. I crept to the bed, and Vicky was still sleeping. Sitting on the edge of the bed, I came out of my slippers, and as I brought my legs up, the bed slightly creaked. My roommate immediately awoke, turned to me and said, Sheila, could you please keep it down? You are making so much noise. Malawian hippo love story from Sheila Arnold here on The Appleseed. We're going to wrap up today with a story from the Story Crafters. This is a tale from Cameroon. and In the story, the generous chief of a village preparing for the annual harvest festival asks all of the members of the village to contribute one tiny gourd of palm wine to the great feast. And when a young couple finds that they only have the smallest amount of palm wine, will they decide to share it or keep it for themselves? After all, one couple's contribution won't make a difference now, will it? Here's the Story Crafters with a gourd of palm wine here on the Appleseed.
spirit, the spirit of Ubuntu Boto. It's a spirit that lives within a village or a community or a family or any group of people. It means the spirit of being human. And it includes things like generosity, cooperation, kindness, love, peace, and all these things wrap up with many others to make up the spirit of Ubuntu Boto. But the spirit of Ubuntu Boto lives within a village only so long as every single person in that village lives with those qualities. If even one person forgets to live with those qualities, then it is said that the spirit of Ubuntu Boto disappears. And when the spirit of Ubuntu Boto disappears, every single person in the village can feel the fact that it's gone. Now we can tell you a story from the west of Africa, from Cameroon, where it is a tradition that at the time of the harvest, the people gather together to celebrate the bounty of the earth. And when they come together for that celebration, they sing this song of harvest celebration, and their voices rise up toward the sky. There was one village in one part of Africa where there was a chief who was known to be a particularly generous chief. You see, the chief owns the lands where the people grow the crops and the food to eat. And when the harvest comes in, the people give all of that food from those fields to the chief. But this chief was known to be so generous that when the harvest came in and the food was given to him, he turned right around and gave that food back to the people. On a year when there was a particularly bountiful harvest, the chief threw a feast, mm, a celebration like you've never seen. He sent the hunters out into the bush. They caught antelope. They cooked those antelope on spits over open fires. They made vegetable stews. They roasted yams. The people came together in a great circle in the middle of the village, and they sang that harvest song. And when they sang it, their voices rose up toward the sky. And the 
chief didn't ask for very much from his guests at the celebration. He only asked them to bring one thing. Everyone here in this community will bring a gourd filled with palm wine. And when you come to the celebration in the center of the village, I will have placed there a calabash. When you come, you pour the contents of your gourd into that calabash, and that way everyone living in this community can share their palm wine with everyone else. And in that way, the chief brought about the spirit of Ubuntu Boto in his village. But there was one young couple living in that village, and they had themselves a bit of a problem. You see, the wife was about to give birth to their first child. Only giving birth is a blessing and not a problem. No, the problem was this. It was tradition in that village that you celebrate the birth of a child by drinking palm wine. And this young couple only had enough palm wine to do one of the two things. They could either bring a gourd full of palm wine to the celebration... Or... They could save it for the birth of their child. And they just didn't know what to do. But it was the husband that came up with an idea. He said, Wife, it is so important to me that we have this palm wine for the birth of our child. Hmm. I'll tell you what we'll do. On the day of the feast, I will take the gourd down to the river. I will fill that gourd with river water. We'll take the river water to the feast and we'll pour the river water into the calabash. Now, every person in the village is going to put palm wine in that calabash. What difference can it possibly make if me, one person, I put river water in there instead? None at all. And so it was decided. On the day of the celebration, husband and wife went down to the river with their gourd. They filled it with river water. And then they turned and started walking along the roads that led into the village center. And as they walked along those roads, they met up with others who were carrying their gourds and going to the village celebration. So as the people walked together on those roads, they sang that song of harvest celebration and their voices rose up toward the sky. they got to the village center, they could smell the aroma of those roasting yams. They could see the smoke rising up from the antelope as they cooked on the spits. And they could hear the drummers welcoming them to the celebration. And when they got to the village center, one by one the people walked by that calabash, and one by one the people poured the contents of their gourd into it. And that man, the one with the river water in his gourd, he walked over to the calabash, and first he looked around to make sure that no one was noticing. No one seemed to care. They were all talking amongst themselves in the circle. So he tipped that gourd and poured the river water into the calabash. It mixed with the liquid. You couldn't tell the difference. Oh, what difference can it possibly make? Everyone here, they put palm wine in that calabash. I put river water, one person, ah, it will make no difference at all. So that man walked over and sat down in the circle with all of the people. 
they sang that harvest song one more time, and their voices rose up toward the sky. Then the chief stood up, because it was tradition in that village that the chief start the celebration by taking the first sip of palm wine from the calabash. So the chief walked over to the calabash. He picked up a gourd. He dipped that gourd down into the liquid. It filled. The chief brought the gourd up to his lips, and the chief sipped. And then the chief poured the contents of the gourd down upon the dry earth. Everyone here insults me, he said. And then he pointed to an old man. You insult me. He pointed to a young woman. You insult me. And he pointed to the children. Even you insult me. I ask a simple thing. I ask everyone in this community to come to the celebration with a gourd of palm wine. But you show me no respect. And what's worse is you show each other no respect. For I taste nothing but common river water in my gourd. And now the people looked at one another across the circle. And then they looked at the ground. Because they realized something then. They realized that it wasn't just one person. No, it was every person in that village that had thought of some reason why they shouldn't have to bring the palm wine. What difference can it possibly make, they all thought. So every single person in that village had brought river water. As they sat around the fire that night, Watching the antelope roast, the spirit of Ubuntu Boto was not sitting among them. The people were very uncomfortable with each other, with the chief, and with themselves. So one by one those people got up from the circle there, and one by one those people walked those long roads back to their own huts, where they spent the rest of the night all by themselves. But after that night, something changed in that village. If you were living there, you wouldn't necessarily see it, but you could feel it. You could feel it if you were out in the fields working with the people because every one of those people stayed there and worked until the sun went down in the sky. You could feel it on the roads or in the huts, in the smiles in people's eyes or in the warmth of their handshakes. It was the spirit of Ubuntu Boto. It had slowly, slowly crept into that village until it shone from every person's heart. And the next year, in that village, there was another very bountiful harvest. And so the chief gathered the people together for another one of his very special harvest celebrations. Only that year, every single person living in that village came to the celebration bearing a gourd full of... Palm wine. And when the people sat around the fire that year watching the antelope roast, the spirit of Ubuntu Boto was sitting among them. 
So when they sang their song of harvest celebration, their voices rose up toward the sky and touched it. Oh, Dunday, oh, Dunday. Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, the story crafters. What a pleasure to bring that story to you, along with stories from Sheila Arnold and from uh, Sid Lieberman with I'm Sean Connery. We want to invite you to participate in a service project with us, or rather 10,000 acts of service. We're inviting our listeners to contribute with us 10,000 acts or service. You can bake cookies for a neighbor. You can mow somebody's lawn. You can tell someone a story. And you can go to byuradio.org service for more information and to tell us about what you've done as acts of service. One thing's for sure, when someone challenges us and our listeners to do 10,000 acts acts of service in less than a month, we say one thing. We say, bring it. Bring your talents and your interests and your service opportunities to the table, and we'll do a lot of good together. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.